Welcome to The Curious Culture. My name is Nick Haralambis and I am your obsessively curious host. And in season two, we are discussing why people start things. If you like this show, please like, subscribe and share anywhere and everywhere. That will help us grow this incredibly curious community. For now, enjoy this episode. Mike, thank you so much for joining me on the second season of The Curious Cult Show. It's a pleasure to have you with me. So thank you for your time. Uh, right back at you, Nick. It's a pleasure to be spending time with you in this regard. Thank you, Mike. So before we get into the questions and our conversation, why don't you tell my listeners and viewers, because this will be on YouTube as well as my podcast, who you are and why they should be listening to you? Wow. I, so I'm a, a very proud South African. I've had a 30-year career, most of it in corporates. I used to be marketing director of a big liquor company, Diageo. I was CEO of Levi's in South Africa, then went to Europe, headed up the brand there, came back to South Africa, started a business uh, in the last recession, 2009, uh, built it up successfully, sold it, and I must say the entrepreneurial bug bit me. So the earnout from that I've now used to reinvest in South African businesses. But I spend most of my time now doing either mentorship, helping small businesses grow, as well as doing a bit of investing. And where I can, I try and pay it forward. Um, hopefully through a podcast like this, I can do some of that as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Mike, that's such an interesting career. And it's very, I'd like to speak to people who've gone the corporate routes, traditional, like steadfast, and then done a 180 and gone into right. their own business. So I think we're set up for an interesting conversation today. So, so the theme is starting and... I think the, the first question I want to ask you is, can you remember the first really difficult thing you started or set your mind to? And I mean, from anywhere from school all the way through to where you are now, like, do you remember something really challenging? I've had a few challenging starts, uh, Nick, but I must say every time I've done it, for the most part, it's been successful. It, it turned out okay. I guess at school, uh, I started a fishery. I used to farm with uh, fish, tropical fish, guppies, chicklets, you name it. And that was difficult because I knew nothing about it. There was no internet and it was um, sort of hit and miss. So one batch of fish would survive and I could sell them at five rand a fish. The rest, all of them died because the water was too cold. So I eventually packed wow. it in because I was losing more fish than I was able to sell. But I guess that's when the entrepreneurial bug bit me. Um, and mostly because I had to do it on my own uh, with emotional encouragement from my parents, but nothing else. That's amazing. And did you have a, an intrinsic like curiosity around fish or were you just around fish? So that's why you went that route. That's a great question. I, I had a natural curiosity, grew up in Cape Town, Belleville boy, born and bred. And my daughter now is the sixth generation who's been going to Amanus. So my great grandfather, my great, great grandfather was one of the very first holiday owners in Amanus. So grew up in the ocean, dived, fished. Um, so natural curiosity and a love, if you will, for the ocean and all things aquatic, which is probably also why I ended up in the Navy, um, which was a defining moment of my life. That's amazing. Let's talk about that. So it's very interesting for someone in my generation to speak to someone who went to the Navy or the Army at all, because it's not really something that happens very much in South Africa. So why? No. Why did you go to the Navy? Well, firstly, was, I was conscripted, so, you know, it was um, okay. government forced, forced is probably the wrong word, but made us go. And uh, I applied. Forced, uh, you know, it's appropriate. Yeah. So I got drafted into the Navy. I was lucky to be able to do that. Um, wanted to become a Navy diver. Wasn't possible because was medically unfit because of eardrum issues. But I ended up being an instructor for all of the basic intakes and in the last six months I was a survival instructor which basically meant that we threw young troops uh, sort of 10 nautical miles of Saldana in the water and let them you know let them hang there for about five hours until we picked them up again all sorts of things but but the Navy was wow. import, important in my life it, it's a bittersweet thing for me because uh, it was a very big eye-opener into the world of why are we at war with and with whom? You know, I, there were six months of, of my training with Marines that I don't talk about, which was really hard, but it introduced me to myself. I was 
Uh, I always say context is one of the important gifts that we have in life. What's the worst thing that's ever happened to you? And if whatever's happening to you now doesn't meet that, you're going to be okay. So I have a six-month period where it was really the, the worst kind. Made it through, so nothing's come close since. So touch wood, I'm still going to be okay. So it was a very fast, accelerated growing up, getting to know myself. And then when I left, I had a completely different perspective on both uh, South Africa as a whole, but also in terms of who I was and what I wanted to be. How old were you when you left the Navy? I was 18. Wow, when you left the Navy? Yep. So when were you conscripted in? I was conscripted out of matric. I was a young matriculant, so I okay. turned 18 in my second year. And uh, yeah, okay. so, so I left. I, became, uh, I turned 19 in my first year at varsity. It's so crazy to me. I mean, to give you context of where I'm going with this, my parents were young married at 18 and 20. My mom and dad had me mm -hmm. and my brother by the time they were 23. Right. I'm now 36 and I have no children. I've never been to the Navy. Like, I can't understand that level of responsibility at such a young age. And I count the Navy right up there, right? I, I have no context of that. My 18, 19 year, I was at Rhodes having fun. It's such an interesting experience. Yeah, you know, I've learned over time that you can make it mythical, you can romanticize it. The reality is, as a young man, you don't have any of the maturity required to do what we did, and particularly being an instructor, and then particularly with the Marines, you basically are entrusted with people's lives. And sadly, some of them didn't make it. So reflecting upon that, uh, you know, it, it, was, it was a mindfuck in, in many ways, uh, in hindsight. Yeah. So if anything, it's, begin, it's become uh, a moral compass for me on what not to do and what to say yes to and what to say no to. So regardless of all the mistakes I've made in my life to date, there's this one part of my life that really shaped how I look at things and how I make decisions relative mm. to human beings and the people that we work with. That's so interesting. And on a much less life and death scale, it's something I try and remind people about uh, success versus failure, that yeah. success is not the avoidance of failure. You yes. have to experience failure. Yep. You have to experience the pain, good or bad. And like you said, at six months, you don't really talk about because why, but you still benchmark the rest of what happens to you in relation to the worst of times or the most yeah. difficult of times. No, absolutely. And, and as I said, you know, it's, it's, it's a very small part of my life but it's a very big part in, in as much as it shaped me and and today I can confidently say it's it's put my life in balance you know for many years after um, national service through varsity and beyond there were still lots of things that made me question what is happening in the world I was one of the South Africans white Afrikaans speaking who were absolutely delighted when uh, I knew that Mr. Mandela was being released. And when I voted, I mean, in the first election, I voted ANC. Uh, not for any other reason. Part guilt, part this is great. Uh, and, you know, whatever the challenges are today, I think we should reflect upon those really amazing times in the early 90s where we could have gone a completely a different way. South Africa could have imploded, but it did not. Yeah, absolutely agree. So, I mean, just we've literally only been talking for a few minutes and I can already tell that you're you're someone who's excited by the idea of starting things, yes. considering you started your own fishery when you were a teenager and then you were excited to go to the Navy and throw troops into yeah. water. Yeah. I mean, we can talk about that as another whole podcast. But so I think what I'm curious about now is for someone who's like much like me, excited from a young age to start things, have you ever prevented yourself from starting something out of fear or something that held you back? And if so, how did you overcome it? Uh, yes, it's a great question. I, in, in my career, the first two times before I went overseas, I was offered amazing positions. With Diageo, I was offered a position in Amsterdam to head up Jose Cuervo and then subsequently another big whiskey brand. And... I was fearful of doing that for one reason only, perhaps selfishly, because of my family. You know, all of the people I knew and loved were based in South Africa, and I couldn't yet in my mind see myself breaking with that and living overseas, even though it might have been temporary. The third opportunity came when I was with Levi's, and 
the then uh, CEO, John Anderson, said, Mike, we need you to run the brand in Europe. And I had the same doubts, but I then realized, look, you're not going to get a fourth chance. This is it. I made that leap. I, I, the very same family I left here. Um, and you know what? It turned out spectacularly. And, and, and I have to qualify that um, adjective for me in as much as not only was it a great opportunity, added some real value to the business, but as a human being, I just grew. Because when you land in Europe, nobody knows who you are. There's no network. There's no perception other than this guy from South Africa. What does he know? So I had to literally yeah. start afresh to not only engender trust from everybody that I worked with, but also put some runs on the board. You know, you, you, you've got kind of 100 days to prove yourself. And that part I enjoyed most. So it was kind of a clean slate come in. It was a C-suite op uh, opportunity, but the stakes are much higher. Uh, I often reflect, you know, the marketing budget for Levi Strauss, uh, Europe, uh, Middle East and Russia at the time was $94 million. Now just, just let that sink in. That, that, just, mark, just the marketing, just the marketing budget, budget um, for yeah. the company. And essentially that buck stopped with me. So it taught me two things. One is the importance of being able to lead with both instinct and skill. But secondly, you know, whether you're working with one rand or with a million rand, you know, money is money. So, so it's not the quantum of the, of the money that makes sense. It's what you do with it and what you're able to do with it to grow and deliver some good results. So those were the two things I left with and brought back to South Africa. So interesting. I'm curious about this corporate experience that you had of starting stuff. So mm -hmm. you said that you, you kind of got 100 days to prove uh, your metal, but, but in what context, right? Does that mean that as a young executive, you come into this new region and just disrupt stuff internally? Or do you kind of toe the line until you're ready to take a sharp right turn? Like, how did you experience this idea of starting something new as mm -hmm. a new person in a new region? That's a great question, Nick. It's quite astute. So, so it was a combination of both. I think at the time, I'd already gone through the corporate experience of becoming a market director at a very young age. And at that time, I'd say in most of the 90s, early 2000s, uh, ego still drove a lot of the decisions. You know, got to make a difference. It's that classic conundrum. You, you get into a new role, you've got to prove yourself. With Levi's Europe, there was less of that and more of, let me just understand the environment that I'm in. So I took some time to really understand all the variables. And then I made a call and said, right, I'm going to make two or three big decisions here that I believe would fundamentally move the dial forward. Uh, two of those three decisions worked out exceptionally well. One of them was a bit of a failure, but that was fine. So it was, this yeah, it was a combination of understanding first what it is that I let myself into, understand the environment, and then made a, a strong leadership call, a disruptive call on how to get there. That's great. Exactly mm. what I was wondering about. Um, and then a completely unscripted question, but how did you find the reception of European people that you worked with versus South African people that you worked with in terms of innovation and new startings? Were was South Africa more conservative or Europe more conservative? This just I'm just curious. At the time, I found Europe to be more conservative, funnily enough, you know, particularly wow. being based in Brussels, the entire corporate structure was one based on protection of the employers, very conservative comfort zones. And I found that to be a stimulus uh, to me because with the South African Levi's business, we did pretty much 30, 24, 7, 365 days innovation. We turned the Levi's business South Africa around from a loss-making company to a triple-digit growth in four years. Levi's wow. South, uh, Europe, however, was so set in its ways, even though there was very uh -huh. marginal growth. So to disrupt there took, I think, a little bit more. And I realized you, it's like an elephant. You couldn't buy, do this in one big chunk. You know, took three pieces and two of them worked exceptionally well. One of them was a bit of a non-starter. Um, but... I think the leadership that I was allowed or had the privilege to apply, that leadership of innovation and, and, and disruptive thinking, uh, as soon as the results started showing itself, I found more people coming over to this side saying, hang on, this is actually very cool. I'll give you one example. Amazing. I, I had the privilege yeah. of working with the amazing agency, BBH, 
Bartel Bogle and Hegarty, who were the, you know, Sir John Hegarty was, was the guy who cracked the very first Levi's ad, Laundrette, you know, with Nick Carmen sound, uh, walking into the Laundrette. Um, and yeah. so they believed at the time that Levi's was lacking that breakthrough, very cool, very authentic Levi's signature communication. And being head of marketing, head of brand at the time, I said, well, let's get back to that. I said to John, I'll, I'll never forget it in London one day in, a, in, a, uh, in the boardroom saying, you need to take Levi's back to where it was because it's gone wandering off in the, in the forest. We try to be as fashionable as G-Star at the time and Seven for Mankind and Levi's never, have to, never has to follow. We needed to set the pace. And mm. they did come up with an amazing campaign, very challenging, but it brought the brand back to its roots. And so that was a great uh, result, which was really rooted in the fact that we empowered the agency to get back to what they needed to do. And I had to take both the flack originally, as well as stand up and say, this is what we're going to do. You might not like it and it might be a bit too liberal, but it's going to work. By the way, I had no guarantee. So I went on a combination yeah. of gut and mostly based on what the brand had done for decades before. So there was a trust that the brand could take the strain of just getting back onto the track of being this iconic global brand, true to its roots. Yeah, absolutely. The thing that I love about that story is young startups often compare themselves to competitors yep. and try and follow. And even it's great to hear that even a brand like Levi was looking at their competitors going, oh, crap, we better follow. They're going that way. We better go that way. And the hard break was actually just go back to where you were. You can't control your competitor's strategies. You can only control your own. They can't be better than you at what you do. And I love that it's even at a high level. And this it's something that starters, people who start things all the time think, oh, the big guys have got it figured out. Yeah. They know what they're doing. When actually, a lot of the time, the big guys are as clueless as a startup. Yes. That's a good point, Nick. You know what? One of the, I've known you for quite a while, and I've always respected the fact that you, you call it like it is. You know, the, the, the ability to apply candor consistently. And what I realized there was once you really believe in something, you just need to consistently bang that drum. Don't kowtow, don't bend. You know, the political winds, particularly at that level of corporate life, blows yeah. hard sometimes. And if you're going in the other direction, you could easily be blown off your feet. Um, whereas with entrepreneurship, you know, you are essentially your very own master. You can get tons of free advice, but the, the person's got to do the work as you. And, and yeah. so I found that part of being an entrepreneur later in my life very refreshing. You know, I look at my boss every day in the mirror. So whereas when you work for a big corporate, you know, you get free advice and then you get what a colleague of mine used to call dental equilibrium, which you find in the shark. Okay. As much as you bite up, the, the top jaw comes down. So where does the pressure stabilize? And I love that. I, I think the resilience, that dental equilibrium, I realized that equilibrium finds the spot in the middle where you should be. But as long as you can push back as hard as you're being pushed. Um, and, and that's a, a leadership uh, trait and the characteristic that I have since used and honed, particularly in the world mm. of entrepreneurship, because that's sometimes required as well. You know this better than anybody. When people say it can't be done or you can't do this, you say, well, have you tried? No, but you know all the stats point one way. Um, I've, I've, like you, have often been asked, you know, what is a, what makes a great entrepreneur? If I knew that, I'd be a multi-billionaire by now. I'm not. Yeah, me so too. I can't bottle it. <laughs> uh, you know, we can have yeah. um, conversations like this one, and maybe one or two things sticks, and someone who's listening or watching this takes it and assimilates it into their own unique set of circumstance. You know, it's not one size fits all. Absolutely. And I think that's the key thing. I just finished just a couple of months mm. ago reading Bob Iger's book. Ah, Nobody's, yes. Ah, it was absolutely brilliant. And I, I haven't read a book about a f actually ever from a full time corporate person who climbed his way from nothing to the CEO of one of the biggest businesses in the world. And yeah, it's I bet you if we had to ask him what makes a, a perfect entrepreneur, he would also be like, I don't know. Are you, are you kidding? No one yeah. else. Because it's so personal to each person and the path that they choose yeah. that there isn't a cookie cutter model for entrepreneurship no. or anything for that matter. 
No, it's very, that's very true. You know, I remembered when I was at varsity, I, I neglected to mention, you know, being good Afrikaans boy, um, my dad was at was Pretoria. So I went to Tuckies, and in my first year, I was very antisocial, but I discovered this thing called RAG. I don't know if you're familiar with it, Yule. So I, I, mean. I became, my first year, I went on to RAG. Second year, I became RAG chairman at Tuckies. It's probably yeah. worth explaining to my listeners what RAG is. So RAG is, is a charitable... Um, program at Varsity. It stands for Remember and Give. And it's basically where students shake tins in the street, do multiple projects. We used to host rock shows um, to raise money and then give that back to charity. And for me, in many ways, having spent four years on RAG was a great way to really understand the basics of business. Even though it was a not-for-profit, the principles of, of raising the money was proper business. You had to put together a team, various projects, project manage. And in my fourth year, I was fortunate enough to become National RAG Chairman. So at the time, in 1988, the only forum where all the universities actually spoke to each other, no po was politics, RAG. was RAG. So my best wow. mates were at WITS and at, at uh, UCT. But then there was a little curve. Our Chancellor, a curveball, our Chancellor at the time was the late Dr. Anton Rupert. So him and the Vice-Chancellor, Professor Dani Jubeir, no relation, called me into yeah. their office one day, never forget this, this was July of 1988, and said, look, we know you've done RAG and you're not interested in SRC, but we'd like you to stand for the SRC. That was my first taste of, um, how shall I put this, uh, <laughs> diplomatic intervention. Yes, subtle directions. Yeah, it was very conservative, very literally right-wing. I had no sense of, of politics, particularly given my national service experience. So I said yes. Mm. And lo and behold, I not only make the SRC, I become SRC bloody president. Um, <laughs> so I was a mere two weeks in the role and I get called in again by the same two gentlemen. By the way, Dr. Yeah. Anton Rupert became one of my three mentors. I mean, he was a, an amazing, amazing man. And so Prof. Mm -hmm. Dani says to me, Mike, so... You and the SRC need to help us for the first time in the history of this university. We are not only going to allow black students on campus full time, but we are going to provide um, dormitory uh, accommodation. So, wow. I mean, if you could consider 1988, you were still yeah. in an apartheid regime, Nationalist Party. Takis was very white and conservative. So I spent most of my term, uh, if you will, managing big public forums where you had the then, wow. um, you know, the far right wing, Eugene de Blanche's lot, and we had New SAS and SDS. It was fascinating, and that was really a baptism by fire. But the result, though, was that in 1988, Takis took its first very progressive step towards becoming a, an inclusive university, which took many years after the fact to get there. But mm. for such a Ivy League university to take such a big leap and for me to be able to lead that from a student uh, perspective. And so through RAG and SRC, I became involved in my first NGO, Project Literacy. So Project Literacy was and is the biggest provider of adult basic education and training. So the, my fellow board members, trustees, uh, were the amazing advocate judge Johan Krichler and advocate judge Dikang Moseneki the two of whom actually then ran the first democratic election. So, so they're both friends wow. of mine, Ruda Lampmann. So as a young, very young person sitting in the, in the sort of room with, with people like that, understanding at the time that 30% plus of South Africans, adult South Africans, couldn't read or write. So an adult male or female who can't read a ballot box, can't fill in their own banking details. We still have that today, by the way. There, there's yeah. at least 25% adult illiteracy. And you can just imagine the impact of that. How old were you at the time in 1988? I was 22, I think, 23, thereabouts. So the amazing context for me is at 22, 23, you've already started a fishery. You've already gone to the <laughs> Navy. You've already thrown troops into the water and tried to save them and teach them survival. <laughs> and, and it's still, I mean, that, that level of stuff that you've done is what most people will do in a lifetime. So now my question is, at 22, 23, you've got these insane things happening around you. Mm. 
at the time, did you understand the gravity of what was going on? And mm, yes. what was the fear like? Because, I mean, you're about to not start something. You're about yeah. to start a revolution yeah. and be part of a revolution. So did, was there apprehension at the age of 22, 23? Or were you like, fuck it, this is life, I'm, I'm going yeah. Nick, no, I, I, absolutely what you just said. I, after, after the Navy and after RAG, it was, RAG was just more of seeing... And by the way, at Tuckies, we then started supporting at the time, you know, black charitable organizations. So we, we gave money where it was most needed, not uh, uh, anyway. So, so it was absolutely going, you know, where angels fear to tread. I also realized perhaps still a little bit ego bound and also just blind faith that I had two sponsors in, in the, in the, you know, in the shape of Dr. Anton Rupert and, and our vice chancellor, who basically mm. on a regular basis said, Mike, it's okay. You're taking strain and your team's taking strain, but we've got this. So I realized then the value of a sponsor, which I've okay. tried to, so, so Dr. Rupert in, in the, you know, he became a mentor. He actually put me forward and sponsored me to do an MBA straight out of varsity. And he oh. also encouraged me to do my thesis on black economic empowerment with specific reference to the informal oh. sector. Now I did that in 1989 and 1990. Most of my research wow. material was still banned. So the history of the ANC by Francis Melly was banned. So, so Dr. Oh. Rupert got me special academic dispensation to use it. But, but so the point was, I realized, you know, if nothing else, just the political arena that I found myself in, the sort of softly, gently diplomatic approach, absolutely not. I was mm. the guy who was prepared to go to jail. I, I mean, I had my tires slashed. I got interviewed by the military police and friends of mine got locked up at Tuckies and Witz, Rose Hunter. Uh, but, but, and so I realized, you know, it's the right thing to do. My gut told me what we're doing now is the right thing to do for the country. Um, and if I look back and reflect on it now, I realize it was very small relative to what other people were going through at the time. So I would not mm. be one of these liberal bleeding hearts who say, oh, I, I did a lot for South Africa at the time. I was a small part of what was then a very necessary movement at a young yeah. people's level. And, and credit to him, Dr. Rupert understood this he realized that the next generation and the next generation after that would be the leadership and the people who will make a difference in South Africa. And you'll, you'll appreciate this. You know, he's, I'd say most of the conversations we had, which was a lot, he used to fly me down to Stellenbosch and I met with him in his office, top floor. And as you walked into his office, right outside was, was the second casting of Rodin's hands, you know, the, the sculptor. And I always used to mm. say to to Dr. Rupert, you've got this amazing art that you've collected, but this piece is outside of your office. Nobody can see it. And he said, in Afrikaans, said, I see it every day and it provides me joy. And that was his point as well. If something provides you with joy and makes you feel good, you don't have to show the world it, as long as you're motivated mm. by it. And wow, that's, that's quite poignant. Yeah, and, and, and he, was, he was instrumental in saying, you've got to push harder than most if you want to make a difference. And that difference, by the way, he also said to me, you can choose your direction. You can become pure sort of socio-economic NGO type person. You can join politics, which you did at Varsity, or you can become a businessman. And I discounted politics straight away. I kind of, I kind of dabbled in maybe I can save the world by joining NGOs, but I ended up being... Uh, you know, walking the path in business, first in corporates and eventually as an entrepreneur. And yeah, I, I mean, capitalism for, for all its downfall is the best model that I can think of at the moment yeah. for fixing the world if yeah. we can rectify capitalism's negatives. Oh, I, I agree with that, Nick. I mean, it's, it's, you know, outside of our conversation, I've seen, uh, obviously I've been following you and I've seen a lot of the things that you said and I can't agree with you more. You know, if, if you've got 10 people, 100 people who think like you and start doing what you do and you take that collective energy, um, yeah, and we've you and I have both seen that. You know, the the group that we belong to, the sharing is, you know, we, it's it's this network of like-minded people. We might have differences of opinion on how to get shit done, but we are fully aligned in the fact that we can get it done as long as we yeah. just align the energy in the right direction. Which is why, That's as sense. as I, I'm a relative rookie to being a full entrepreneur, it's only been about ten years of my life, but I realize now what an incredible 
both privilege it is, but also a, a, a responsibility in a South African context. Yeah. And that's a personal view. I, I don't do this for the money. I, I do take on board the, the broader accountability as a South African to try and make a difference. So mm. apart from the little bit of investment that I put into Knife Capital, you know, people who know how to do investments, I personally invest in young black entrepreneurs. There's no, there's no monetary exchange. I, I back them and then I say to them what Dr. Rupert said to me, I believe you'll be successful. You need to pay it forward. So I would love to see you employ more people. So the young guy in Amman is Lucky and Galotti, who I helped, I sponsored him through Varsity, helped him set up his business. Today he employs 13 people full-time. He's got two vehicles, he's got the tools, and he's building, he's doing electrical work, building work, plumbing work. Um, and, and it's a joy to see that because for every Lucky, hopefully there are 10 more. I know you've done the same uh, in your own way. And it's the kind of thing you don't have to tell people you do it. You, you just do it and then you see the result of it. Yeah, absolutely. There's a few things I want to touch on from the great story that I didn't even expect from your varsity days. The first thing is a conversation I've had with a few people because I've never had one. I've never had a mentor or a sponsor or anything like that. So my question is, how did Anton Rupert come about? I mean, obviously you met him through varsity, but what if, if you had to give someone advice on how to find a sponsor, um, what would you tell them? And then the second part to that is, can you verbalize the difference between a mentor and a sponsor, or do you see them as the same things? No, they're definitely different. A sponsor, I would see as, as someone who believes in you and backs you, either financially or opens doors or get, takes his or her network and opens doors, but really leaves it up to you. I view a mentor both as a mentee and a mentor as a much more intimate relationship, but it is one where certainly as a mentor, you don't give advice and say you must do that. You provide context and you provide enough variables so that you as the mentee can take on board uh, all of that and then make the decisions yourself. So okay. Dr. Rupert's mentorship eventually, because our, our relationship grew, uh, and I think he, I wasn't the only person, he, he invested his own personal time in a lot of leaders across the spectrum. It was conversation based, a bit like you and I are doing now. You know, he's, he had a personal assistant, Mr. Grunefeld, never forget, and said, Meneer Joubert, you've only got one hour with Dr. Rupert. Three hours later, lunch being brought in, we were still talking. Yeah. And Nick, to be honest, I probably don't remember half of three quarters of what Dr. Rupert said, but I remember how he made me feel. And I remember, by the way, his consistency of certain messages. Sometimes I would go, but Doc, you already told me this and you told me the time before. And then I realized today, it, it was a magnificent uh, thing where if you iterate the key messages across multiple interactions, as you've done with curiosity, for instance, for me, that's a great example. When, when you really bang the curiosity drum, people start getting it. And Doc mm. did that on a number of things. He said, one day when you're able to start a business, always remember that if you pay it forward, it gives you a motivation and an energy that you might not necessarily need now. And the third thing that he was incredibly passionate about was the ability to create a society where the arts and culture was taken care of, you know, where there was development mm. of skill sets in small business. Um, you know, a lot of the things that he did, and by the way, the environment. So Dr. Rupert was instrumental in getting WWF, Worldwide Fund for Nature, established in South Africa 51 wow. years ago. And he was a patron for, for many years. He, a lot of people don't know, he literally out of his own pocket bought the exact same size of, this, of the Kruger National Park on the Mozambique side, gave the money for it, facilitated the conversation so that that piece of land in Mozambique became and still is a national park. And his view was increase the footprint of... Um, geography where you can protect natural species, whether it's fauna or flora. Mm. And, and uh, you know, most people don't know that. But he used to do these things not because he wanted anything from it, only because he saw it as his duty. Yeah. What I love about that, and I mean, obviously, I, I picked this up from you too, and it's something I'm working really hard at, is people who establish a worldview. And that consistency mm. of message is what 
I'm terming as a worldview. Yes. And obviously it changes. I think I've mentioned to you before that one of my favorite statements is strong opinions loosely held. So yes. it's okay to change your opinion if the facts change, but on the whole, people like yourself and what you're talking about, Dr. Rupert, there's a consistency of the worldview. They've yes. thought very carefully about how the world is and how they want it to be. And they don't like squirrel around into a million different things. They've got three or four very key things that they want to affect in change. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people, and part of the reason why this season of the podcast is about starting is a lot of people don't think about their worldview. They just yeah. exist. Yeah. I can't think of which artist said this in one of their songs, but there's an exponential difference between living and being alive. Yeah. And that's part of this establishing your worldview and figuring out what you want out of life. And it sounds like Dr. Rupert was consistent on those three things because that was his worldview. And I love that. Mm. And, and it was also my interpretation of that worldview at an age. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I cringe if I think of some of the things I did over time where I thought I was being so bloody clever. Well, I wasn't. <laughs> but that was part of the learning process, you know. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things that I do use today, particularly with young entrepreneurs or young people, I've also been, had the privilege of, of doing quite a number of lectures over time, is to say that it doesn't matter how you look at it, when you have experience and you combine your experience with the skill, that will make you a better entrepreneur or a better leader. Experience is not something you can fake. You can't just pull it off mm. the shelf in a book and say, I've now read Steve Jobs' story. I've just sucked his experience out of the book. Yeah. I can go and start Apple. It doesn't work that way. But you've got to start that journey and you've got to do it. I, I, as you know, I'm a massive fan of, of the, the, the curiosity principle, which you mm. do exceptionally well. And I can say today with any, without any fear of contradiction, is, is it is probably one of the biggest gifts that we have, should we choose to use it, is to be more curious. In a knowledge economy, you can find pretty much any shit on the internet. You know, I, I bought a new piece of equipment the other day, didn't quite understand how a nozzle fitted. And so I went in the internet. On YouTube, there are about six bloody videos that shows you how to do it. It's now, that's one example. Um, yeah. In, in terms of the worldview that you very astutely observed upon, um, that's the same. So if you have a natural curiosity and you're prepared to take in things, and challenge your own views, then I believe collectively or cumulatively, you raise your own game. You yeah. know, my game might still be completely different from someone else's view, but at least we compete on an equal footing. Barack Obama in his, in his second book, right in, in I think it's the third or fourth chapter, writes beautifully about what he most respects is to have a worthy opponent and there's a challenging conversation, completely different view, but the, the starting point is respect and the leaving point is respect. And he says what yeah. he normally found is he, he didn't gloat when he knew he won that debate. He would rather say, I've now empowered someone. And equally, if someone was able to convince him, he left feeling better, feeling more equipped. And I like 100%. that principle. It's uh, that strong opinions loosely held again. Like yeah. you've got to attract people who challenge you. Otherwise, you're in this echo chamber and you never, uh, uh, in my view, beliefs and opinions only matter if they're challenged. Yes. Because if they're never challenged, then how do you know that they're actually true? Yeah, exactly. Like if they're good enough. Yeah. And that's that, I think that's essentially the, you know, the, the, the piece that sometimes is missing in, in, in our world today is that, you know, there, there's so many so-called leaders, but now that they're challenged, they, their principles are missing, you know. American politics, the way that COVID's mm. being handled in South Africa, many examples. Mm. I think an entrepreneur, in many ways, you can't hide. There's, there's no nebulous bureaucratic organization where you can withdraw into, say, the, you know, ANC is going to take care of me or government or the Republicans. You're on your own. It's on you. So you've got to make it work and you've got to stand up. And when your principles are tested, you're either going to fall for them or you're going to remain standing. And you yeah. spoke about starting things. I think the, the single biggest um, uh, uh, lesson I've learned about starting things is that in almost no instance have I found, having started something, particularly the heavy stuff, and gone through it, that the world implode, imploded. It's almost like every single time I've started something and I came through it and something happened, good or bad, I came out a better person because I learned from it or somebody else benefited or we both benefited. 
So incredibly, this is one of the key points in my upcoming book around curiosity mm -hmm. off the back of the idea of failure is the psychological phrase that I've come across called post-traumatic growth. Yes. What you've just described is exactly that, that after a trauma, regardless of how bad it was, and I mean that, mm. a child dying, a parent getting into whatever it was, a business failing, you invariably become better in some way or another. There is a lesson you have learned, and mm -hmm. because of that trauma, you have grown in some way. Yes. And that's what I'm trying to help people understand about failure. In South Africa, we're conservative about failure. We don't want to fail, we avoid it. And actually, you should be striving for it because post-traumatic growth implies you will get better after a failure. Yes. And that's exactly what you've just said. No, it's true. So I want to take a, a sharp turn towards your departure from corporate and into the realms of entrepreneurship. I want to walk through that period of your life when you were like, you know what, I'm done with corporates. It's time to go out on my own. How did you address that to yourself, like in your own brain and then to the people around you? What was that conversation like? Oh, that's a good question. So... so... Uh, towards the end of my term in Europe at Levi's, another opportunity presented itself. Levi's was already on its way to centralizing everything again out of San Francisco. At the time, we were three regions. There was the Americas, Europe and the Middle East, and then Asia. And Levi's was going back to a centralized position, which I 100% supported, by the way. Opportunity presented itself to move to San Francisco. And for me, that was one step too far. And at a particular age at the time, I realized... I really want to get back to South Africa and start something new. So I made the call to come back, took a nine-month sabbatical. I was wooed at the time by Steve Ross, who was the CEO of Edgar's. Uh, I remember going, flying up a few times, meeting and interviewing with him. And when you used to go into Edgardale, there was a massive ticket tape that ran across a big LCD, LED, is it LCD or LED screen? Anyway, screen. And it had the yeah. share price. And I remember the first time thinking it was novel, second time, mm, third time, I realized when I had to make a call whether I was going to join Edgar's or not, I'm done, can't do corporates. I can't be part of something that says the share price must go up. It's, it was a very per, deeply personal thing. Edcon yeah. uh, at the time was a great company under Steve Ross yeah. did amazing things. So I said, I'm going to actually now do what I've meant to do which is one of the last things Dr. Rupert shared with me. We had uh, tea at his home in Stellenbosch. His, his wife, Tanya Berte, had or, uh, already sadly passed. But he said, Mike, when you have the chance one day, do try and start a business. Try and do it on your own terms. So I started a business. I started an agency. What was his statement for that? Like, why did he say that that's something you should do in your life? Did he ever explain it? He did. He, he, he said that if, if you have run the yards and you've got the experience and you combine the experience with the skills that you've got when you are your own boss you are in a far better position to influence the lives of other people you can make the call on how many people you employ you can make the call on what you want to reinvest your money in uh, nice. I, i'm paraphrasing i mean he didn't say it exactly like that. Sure, and sure. i now realize what he meant you know you know yourself when you are in charge of your destiny plus your business destiny you can make a call you can Take it all and like Scrooge McDuck, put it in the vault and guard it. Or you can take mm -hmm. some of it and live comfortably and reapply the rest. Yeah. And, and so I, do, I, I deeply believe he had a very sincere desire to create in South Africa a thriving entrepreneurial ecosystem. I mean, he was, he was okay. the person, he was the father of the Small Business Development Corporation mm -hmm. in the late 60s. Mm -hmm. Uh, Johan Rupert, you know, today the, 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 the family is still involved in, in small business development. So then you started Billy Bo. No, I, I started Brands Rock first. So that was my Brands first Brands Rock venture. first. Yeah. Yes, I'm sorry. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, it's, it's all these rock and roll names. So, so yeah. Brands Rock, yeah. my daughter actually came up with the name. It, it's a bit twee, forgive me. But she said, Dad, you always make Brands Rock. And looked, it was available. I could register it. So the office was, I made the first classic, classic entrepreneurial mistake. I wanted the office to look as flippin' rock and roll as possible without a single uh -huh. client on my list. So <laughs> I post-justify the clients loved coming to our offices, but <laughs> I wouldn't suggest today that you spend the little bit of money that you've got on creating the best office. Anyway, those days are long gone. So I started yeah. that in September of 2009. 
I wrote a business plan on the tablecloth at Manos, which is a restaurant here in Greenpoint. Yeah. I still have that piece uh, of tablecloth. Amazing. Ambitious, though. I was going to have five divisions. But the three things I wrote down, which actually worked out, one is I will build a business in five years, which will either be spectacular success or spectacular failure. Secondly is if I am successful, I will reinvest. And third thing is it must be a business that actually sets out to do good, to do good business. Um, and for the most part, to, to, to your earlier point, it was sort of a strong vision, but with loosely held variables. So in the end, the business didn't quite turn out as I'd liked it to, but sure. the heart of it was solid. So it was a strategically driven creative uh, agency. And we had the most amazing clients, Harley Davidson, Jose Cuervo, Rolling Stone magazine, we launched um, Puma, we had Levi's for a while. So this collection of really cool brands made for a really cool culture. And we delivered programs that actually showed results, which you could measure, you know, on the bottom line, which was really the corporate experience, I think, that helped me to do that. So I'm interested, while you were deciding in your nine-month sabbatical um, what kind of business to run, how did you end up at an agency? Also a great question. So, so the, the business could either be I'm going to produce products, like build stuff, or go into a service. And I realized in the sabbatical I'm probably better suited at doing a service-based business. Brands Rock on paper would be a strategic marketing consultancy. So I wanted it to, to be the best of a McKinsey or Deloitte, but without the overheads and the best of an Ogilvy at the time who I rated or BBH, but without the overheads. So that, that intersection. Of course, it never right. realized as that. It actually became a sort of boutique agency, but the, the vision was to be that. And so okay. on paper, just before I started, I said, okay, I'm going to drink my own Kool-Aid. Because I was a client for so long, and this was still a little bit of ego talking, I know what a great mm. agency should be. So, of course, start this bloody thing, knock on the first door. Good mate of mine was head of marketing at the time. Diageo say, ta-da, I've arrived. Give me your business. Yeah. <laughs> and Gavin said, Mike, you're such a lacquer guy, but you know what? We're very happy. In fact, one of the agencies you appointed... So when I joined Diageo, first thing I did was to fire the big agencies because there was a lot of nepotism. And I literally handpicked the agencies I wanted to work with in 1999. Mm. So King James started, both Alistair and James were still at Ogilvy. They started their business on Diageo. And, and mm. so he said, well, King James has got most of the business. Why would you want to take away the business that you started? But yeah, it, that's but, amazing. But, but you know, Nick, it was, a, it was a great realization saying just because you were great in one business doesn't mean that your own business, you know, can, can, can uh, get the same success off the bat. You've got to do it the hard yeah, way. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so a couple of things on that. Since now that you've started, the skill sets of being a leader at a corporate of a big business are way different to being an entrepreneur. So my question is, when you started Brands Rock, what was more important to you? The detail day-to-day -day, or the big picture operationally? And how did you balance that as a new entrepreneur? I, I did both. So I'm a deep and firm believer through experience and through results that the really great businesses, particularly small businesses that grow, has strategic execution at its heart. The ability to take a big picture and find the two or three things that you need to focus the detail on. It might be a combination of having someone with a big picture and then two or three lieutenants who can run with it. Or you very seldom, but you do get people who can do both. So Brandswock was that combination of really big picture thinking, a lot of creative innovation, dis disruptive techniques to get clients to say, oh, I never thought of that. But at the same time, make sure that they have the comfort that if you say you're going to do something amazing on Monday, it's done on Monday and it's done either on or below budget. So mm. I kind of put a guarantee clause in place with all my clients saying we would deliver on budget on time. If not, we forfeit our profit. We ran wow. the Harley Davidson account for, for all of my term at Brands Rock. I had a, we had a contract with them saying that we will help you sell more motorbikes 
And if we don't, wow. we'll forfeit all of our profit. I mean, wow. it, it was actually very naive at the time, but I really believe we could, <laughs> we could help. And we did, thank goodness, at a time. You're, so, you're a brave man. Yeah, you know, I'd, I'd been riding Harleys for a long time as well. So, so for me, that was, that was my, my jewel in the crown client. So I wrote Harley Davidson for a year and a half before the marketing manager finally answered me and said, ah, oh, what the hell, come see me. The rest is history. So we became the agency. Yeah. We helped build the brand. But to your question, Nick, that, that I think that balance of, of having big picture thinking always, always mm -hmm. present at the table and then making sure that whatever that sparkly bit of the big picture starts crystallizing is make sure that you can give that traction, give it the stickiness to deliver a project or deliver a product or deliver a piece of mm -hmm. creative. Otherwise, it is that it, difficult yeah. thing in the beginning, right? That you've got to have the vision, but actually execute and do it really quickly, yeah. but maintain your vision. And it's this constant battle. And I've, I've realized, you know, it's, it's one of those things. I, I think my, I was, I've been asked this recently. This is a, seems to be a new thing. What's your superpower? So, so my superpower is to, is to curate that. I understand and have been on the big picture thinking. I love that context, but I also, you know, with starting with my fishes, I used to keep my own books, you know, every cent counted. I, all my books, mm. my management accounts always came out wow. absolutely spot on. So that is a superpower, Mike. <laughs> so so I, I tend to want to, sur I have, and I tend to want to surround myself with talent that I know mm. I can cur either curate the talent or conduct them like a conductor. I, I can't play a note of music to save my life. But I love, love music, particularly South African music. I've invested in them. Mm. And, and it's like seeing a beautiful piece of art. Can't paint for shit. But mm. when you see it, it's like you can curate beautiful pieces together. And it's the same with business. Put the right people together uh, with, with, a, with a very clear and expressed purpose. And, and I'm not meaning purpose in the sort of academic kumbaya sense that seems to be prevailing yeah. these days. But driving towards a specific goal. Yeah. But that does make me interested in a very common issue that young entrepreneurs or first-time entrepreneurs come across is the switch between building a business where you're selling a product to being a founder where your product is the business. So yes. over time, you stop working in your business and you have to start working on your business. Yes. How did you kind of manage that flip? Because you're like, this is your baby, you're invested in it. It's not like it's your corporate where you can, you know, let politics play out. So if politics plays out in an entrepreneurial endeavor, it's over if it doesn't work out well. Mm. So how did you make that transition? It was a fairly easy transition because I recognized up front I needed to do that. I did not want to be a Richard Branson that I become the brand. So, so I was very fortunate to be able to find the talent that I could invest in who then took the business and ran with it. So within three years, I appointed a, a proper managing director for the business, a chap called Rudy Asim, and he was terrific at running the business. My key client service uh, facing directors could literally run the business themselves. So I withdrew. I became which, uh, what Richard Heitner, ex-chairman of Saatchi, termed as the consigliere in the shadows. And even today, I love being that. I, I love stepping aside and seeing a really good leader or good manager or a good mm. product developer or a good entrepreneur fly by just helping, mentoring, coaching, networking, connecting people with each other. So with Brands Rock, that. it was sort of that consigliere in the shadows version 1.0. So there was a bit of hit and miss. Sometimes I actually had to step in. But for the most mm. part, when I was able to, to, to sell to publicists, I made a very big strategic decision. So I had a terrific guy who helped me with my deal. And to be able to sell to, at the time, either WPP or publicists, I realized that I like publicists more because of its values and BBH was a part of it. But I would have to move to Joburg to become CEO there of this business. And I made a life decision to say, a little bit too old, don't want to be CEO. I said to Larry, why don't we find a proper CEO Happy to give up equity, and we did. We found John Dixon. Amazing. Made John a, a, an offer for minority stake. Said, when we sell to publicists, you're going to have to run this business, which he did and still does, by the way. He's the CEO of Publicists Africa. And John is a terrific dyed-in-the-wool agency man, which I never mm. was. So ego stepped aside. Yeah. It's like my business will make a lot more Key. sense when someone proper runs it 
I'll get my earn out, which is less because I gave up equity. But you know what, Nick, in the end, everything worked out as it should. This is the key thing. And I think uh, it's something that I'm still learning every day. And I'm sure that you are too, and everyone is. But when you're younger, ego is absolutely at the center of most of the things you do. You're trying to accomplish and you want those accomplishments to be on your shoulders. But as I get older, there's this very fine balance between how much I want other people to succeed with me and I don't want to take credit for it yeah. and how much I want succeeding to be mine. And I'm finding less and less that I want to be the one who wins all the time. Mm. I have very clear ideas of what success and failure look like to me, and I'm trying to strive for and avoid them. And so I think the kind of, it leads me to the next uh, question is when you started Brands Rock, did you have a very clear idea of what success looked like, or did you just build this thing until whatever came about? I did in as much as I wrote it down. So I realized at the end of success for me is I've got a five-year term, a chapter year. One of the things I picked up from Dr. Rupert, he always used to say, you live your life in chapters. Some of it's a week long, some of it's 10 years long. I saw a five-year chapter of a successful business, which I could sell. I wanted to become BBH in South Africa. So I had this vision of selling it to, to John Hegarty and, and or become BBH South Africa, which didn't work mm -hmm. out, but publicists ended up. The in-between bit, though, the, the, so that was the big picture, the vision. To get there, though, I had absolutely no clue. So for starters, I, did the fun, I made the fundamental mistake at the time of cashing in my um, pension. So, so I took my oh. Levi's pension, realized it in cash, paid tax, and then, so I put that in. Uh, then I had, I lived, uh, yeah, I lived <laughs> mortgage three. I had a lovely apartment, well, lovely, small, but in, in um, Tabushlov. So I remortgaged that. And then, so very close to the money running out, we, we landed FNB eBucks as a client. I mean, oh. I, I, I didn't pay myself a salary for three and a half years, actually three years and seven months. So what I used to do, I'm, I collect art. So I had a massive collection of art. Most of it's still in boxes post Brussels. Started selling these yeah. things. I had a beautiful big uh, Richard Scott called um, Kevin Skull sort of a two meter by one meter. A friend of mine phoned and said, you know everybody, Mike, we, we're trying to find an agency for e-bucks and everybody we've tried just don't get it. I said, well, Deirdre, you do know that I'm an agency. She said, yeah, but can you guys do it? I said, give me a chance. I sold, yes, yes. I sold Kevin's goal for an obscene, a small amount, just enough to fly five yeah. people up to Joburg. 24 hour turnaround, we sat in the room, we had no creative, we just spitballed. And I think the cultural energy that we gave off made eBucks to say, we'll take a chance on you. We got the business. It fundamentally changed Brand Rock's fortunes around. And the business then grew to become a very profitable and marketable and sellable enterprise. Um, and and there was nothing in the books. There was nothing in the, in the handbook to tell you that's how you had to do it. I just went purely on gut. On. Went on gut. And I think that's such a key thing that... Uh, we want to avoid risk, but actually you need to take small calculated risks when you believe that they're right. You can't build anything of value without risk. It's exactly. just the level of risk, what your appetite is like. And I mean, I don't have any, uh, I don't glorify people who take crazy risks. I'm a big fan of poker and you mm -hmm. often see uh, what they, I don't know if you play poker, but donkeys who come along and think that they're taking a good risk, but poker's a numbers game. Building yeah. a business is actually a numbers game. It's it statistics is. and it's math. And you selling that piece, you had a gut feeling that you could win if you just got in front of them. And, you know, that's a calculated risk. And I love yeah. that. Yeah. Well, I, I will just close the loop because there I agree with you again, 100%. One of the best of five decisions I made in Brands Rock is sort of a year and a half in, I realized I can't run the finance of this thing. So I went and basically coaxed my ex-colleague from Levi's, Nikki Burton, out of retirement. She's a CA. She was the FD of Levi's. She was the um, caretaking CEO before I joined. I said, Nick, just come join me. I can't pay you but properly, but and she did. So, so Nikki was that counterpoint. And when I presented it with what I wanted to do, she said, the risk is, is acceptable. And to my earlier point, oh. my, my small group of confidants in my team, great COO, great CFO, and then somebody uh, who helped me with all of my clients, between the four of us, mm. you know, I, I think that made sure that 
sometimes that big, I just need to do this, was somehow always anchored in someone just saying, the risk is acceptable. Absolutely. It's such a key thing to surround yourself with people, again, who challenge the way you do things, agree with the big vision, but don't just say yes and don't just say no. There's reason and thinking behind it. It's yeah. so key. You know, to, to your point about curiosity, I think that balance of being curious and trying things with just some semblance of reality and a practical compass that still makes mm -hmm. sure that the numbers stack up. You spoke earlier about strategy versus execution. It's the same about... You know, it's a left brain, right brain balance. Mm -hmm. So I would, even today, I would not touch a business again unless I knew there was someone in the mix who could take care of the numbers properly, who could mm -hmm. help me make sure that the balance sheet and the numbers stack up. You, you've said this on a few occasions in, in some of the previous podcasts I've listened to. You know, the, uh, I can't remember exactly what you said, but it's that sort of middle of the night where your business on a spreadsheet looks amazing. You know, you wake up or you sit there and you just add an extra zero and on the computer, your business is a freaking raving success. But, but it's yeah. a fool's paradise. Your business doesn't work, doesn't live in an Excel spreadsheet. It's real life. Yeah. And, yeah, and it's that touchy-feely stuff. Yeah, and that was my biggest learning in Brands Rock. I came very close to losing it all. I, I, I will admit that. The sort of mm -hmm. few months pre-e-bucks uh, uh, where I thought, okay, I'm probably going to have to, you know, cash it all in, whatever I'd left. But in the end, it worked out. So it's amazing early on in my career how I'd never, I never believed that so many businesses had a story just like that, just on the edge. They were just about to shut down and they just pushed through and they took a last risk. I think it's the thing that so many young entrepreneurs want to avoid getting to that point where you're so desperate. But honestly, I've, I've never met an entrepreneur who didn't have that situation. I mean, when I sold my first business, I hadn't paid myself a salary for six months and we were three months away from going under. That's just how it is. I, I don't know if you follow Paul Graham. Yes. The Y Combinator yeah, yeah. founder. He's got a great essay called Don't Die or How Not to yeah. Die. And he speaks about being in negotiations, yes. with selling his company and negotiating with his investors to get the final tranche before they shut down. Yeah. So it's just the way that it goes. And it's how you put that all together and manage that. Yeah, it's very interesting. So my, my last question before I ask you to tell my listeners where they can find you is what do you wish someone told you when you were starting out whether it's your career or brands rock like just one one nugget or a few nuggets that you wish that someone had told you uh, I'd, I'd certainly say it's it's to trust your gut more um, not to fear that failure that you spoke about and then the third thing that ties it all together is learn as much as you possibly can every single day from people around you I have uh, Wikipedia and Google on standby. Every time I hear something, watch TV program, I Google, who's this person? What did they do? So that I can use that. If I didn't know it, I can use it. Or if I had a different view or an incorrect view, I can complement that. So, and then I mm. just, I sum it up, Nick. I, I have a simple philosophy, which I've, I now live by. And I've had the discipline over the last few years to be able to do that is be kind, be better and be present takes very little to be kind it it doesn't take a lot to be better and by being better it's being curious you know to steal from your just be curious learn stuff and then the be present is when, when you're talking with someone in a meeting or when you are in a conversation or when you are in a meeting with a lot of people and that includes zoom by the way be present in that conversation because you've already committed your time to it why would you not be fully present and give of your value and take value from yeah. the person opposite don't have your mind full of tax and this and that. You know, give your time while you're in it. And, that and, last one, I struggle works. with so much and I've spent lots of time trying to understand it. I'm even reading the Stoics yes. from the past because that's their main message is yep. be where you are. It's, it's where you are. Just be there. Don't want to be yeah. other, other places. Otherwise, you miss out on what's in front of you. No, that's true. I, I would say that the, the one thing, though, that makes that easier and you'll appreciate this, is, is forming a habit or having the discipline. Mm -hmm. Start with a little bit and every day just add to it until you, it becomes part of your habit. Have less things, but the things that you have. So if it is be kind, be better, be present, just focus on that. And again, it's not one shoe fits all. You know, it's your version of that. Yeah, absolutely. So Mike, in closing, where can my listeners and viewers find you, follow you and anything else you want to tell them about that they should go and visit? Please do that right now. The floor is yours. Well, I would definitely say they need to go and visit you. 
I, anything that you do all right, that you part of that be better. And I don't just say that. I mean, I, I've learned a lot by just listening to your conversations and seeing what you do. So I would Thank say you. that principle applies. If there's someone that you like or vaguely like, follow them, get the best from what they have, combine it with your own bit. I, I could be found on LinkedIn. I've got a Twitter handle still called at Brands Rock. Um, and in the, the spirit of paying it forward, I, I have a, a time constraint like most people, but I'm always open to just answer a few questions or maybe have an initial conversation uh, just to help. I mean, I, I give of that time anyway to the Grindstone Accelerator and to some, some of the entrepreneurs. You've sent some people my way. I enjoy doing that and I've carved out time to do that. Which South Africa's entrepreneurs are very thankful for, I can tell you that. Mike, thank you for your time. It is always riveting talking to you and I'm sure that my listeners got immense value. So please enjoy the rest of this public holiday. Thanks, Nick. The, the privilege and the pleasure has been all mine. Thank you for listening to The Curious Cult Show. I am your host, Nick Haralambis. You can find me at nickharalambis.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on all major podcasting platforms. This podcast was edited by Becky Layton and hosted by yours truly. 